Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hello, this is Occupy Health with uh, Dr. Susan. Today we're going to learn about um, about fibromyalgia and what is it and what do we do about it. I mean, we're hearing more and more about this disease, so let's find out about it. So with us, we have an expert on the topic, Dr. David Brady. Dr. Brady has over 25 years of experience as an integrative practitioner and academic. He's a licensed naturopathic medical physician in Connecticut and Vermont and a board-certified clinical nutritionist. He's a prolific author of medical papers and research articles on fibromyalgia and has dedicated a large part of his professional career to helping people recover from this mysterious disorder. He serves as the Vice President for Health Sciences and a Director of the Human Nutrition Institute and Associate Professor of the Clinical Sciences at the University of Bridgeport in Connecticut. He maintains a private practice, the Whole Body Medicine in Fairfield, Connecticut, and is also the Chief Medical Officer for Designs for Health Incorporated, as well as for Diagnostic Solutions Labs, LLC. He's an internationally sought-after presenter on nutritional, functional, integrative medicine, and has appeared on the speaking panel of some of the largest and most prestigious conferences in this field. He's dedicated and advocates for his patients, and he's the author of the book, The Fibro Fix, from Rodale Incorporated. And he also hosted the extremely popular and informative online Fibro Fix Summit. And you can learn more about this. He's got a couple of websites. I'll mention them now, and we'll be sure to mention them at the end of the show. DrDavidBrady.com, FibroFix.com, and FibroFixSummit.com. So welcome to the show, Dr. Brady. Thank you, Dr. Susan. It's a pleasure to be on, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about uh, a disorder that um, is very important to me and uh, I'm sure hopefully to, uh, to uh, many of your listeners. And that's why you're here and it's an honor to have you as well. But first, I mean, you have a different approach than the standard physician. Uh, so uh, can you tell me a little bit about your approach? For example, what is functional medicine? Well, functional medicine is probably the largest sort of evidence or scientifically based or informed approach to medicine that would be considered outside of the orthodoxy. Um, It's an approach to medicine that doesn't base conclusions just on whether you have a disease or not, but is very concerned with overall function of the body in its entire continuum. So that means essentially that functional medicine doctors appreciate the fact that there's a big difference between being ultimately uh, healthy and vital and not having a disease. There's a lot of shades of gray in between that. And that's really predicted or based upon functionality of your various organs and systems of the body. So rather than just screen you for disease, and if we don't find it, send you on your way and tell you everything is okay, in functional medicine, we look deep under the hood. We look at your unique biochemistry and metabolism and genomics and many other types of objective indicators of 
if you're optimally healthy or not, not just if you have a disease or not. So we're looking to optimize function rather than just rule out and treat disease. So what I do as a functional medicine physician is apply that paradigm to whatever disorder I'm dealing with. And we tend to, uh, in functional medicine, see a lot of patients that have difficult multifactorial chronic disease, things that aren't amenable to a quick drug solution or a quick surgical solution. They're, they're much more complicated and involved and, and take a lot of investigative work to get to the bottom of. And uh, that's what we do. And in this case, uh, we'll be talking about how I apply that paradigm to this thing we call fibromyalgia. So does this mean that we can come back with all our lab values are normal and the doctor tells us everything's normal, we can have a disease? Uh, sure. Yeah, there are there are a whole host of diseases that are uh, what we call diseases of exclusion or diagnoses of exclusion. That there's no definitive laboratory marker or or imaging study or diagnostic study that can be done to conclusively prove uh, or objectively show that you have a disorder or a disease, but that clinically uh, everything is expressing in a way that lines up with something we know as a disease or a disorder, but we've yet to devise or, in, or find uh, objective laboratory markers uh, or some sort of imaging study that is truly unique or novel to that disease to be what we call pathognomonic of the disease, meaning if you have finding X, then you have disease Y. Um, that doesn't exist in fibromyalgia. Yes, and I understand from functional medicine, you can look under the hood and see if what direction your body's going, and you know it might manifest in different uh, diseases. But you can see uh, which way your body's going, and you can take different steps to get it back on a better track. Yeah, that's true. And in fibromyalgia, it's I can think of probably few, if any, disorders where it's more important to take that kind of approach because of the fact that there's no definitive diagnostic certainties on it. Uh, you know, as, as far as this one lab test, you know, yes or no, you have it. Uh, and the conventional treatment approaches, which hopefully we'll have time to talk about, uh, have been shown to, to um, not be that great. They leave a lot to be desired. They're certainly not curative. Uh, and in many cases, they're not even helpful and sometimes can actually make things worse. So what is fibromyalgia? That's a good question. Uh, and that has been something that has been a big controversy within medicine for several decades. Uh, although since about the early 1990s, there's been a agreed upon um, diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia. It's when it's sort of formalized as a accepted disease or disorder in, in the medical community. Um, and the first diagnostic criteria was put up put out by the American College of uh, Rheumatology in 1990. Uh, it was a fairly loose diagnostic criteria that didn't have, um, like we said before, a, a one lab test or something definitive. It was really a guide to doctors to try to figure out, do they likely have this thing we're calling fibromyalgia or not? Uh, very fuzzy around the edges. Frankly, it was way too broad and sucked in way too many people into the disorder. It's been subsequently revised over the years. It was revised significantly several times with the last revision coming out uh, just this past year. But still, it is a diagnosis that is elusive to many doctors. Uh, unfortunately, most doctors in their training, even if they're trained you know, very recently, uh, 
they get very little information about fibromyalgia. Often what they are taught or what they what they uh, their perceptions are, are are inaccurate when you compare them actually to the scientific literature, and that has led to a significant um, incidence of misdiagnosis of fibromyalgia, and it tends to lend toward overdiagnosis. Actually, many many people are told they have fibromyalgia when they really do not have what the researchers are talking about when they when they reference fibromyalgia, and it's not to imply that these um, suffering patients do not have something wrong with them because they do. They just are being told it's fibromyalgia when it's something else that can be adequately treated if it was identified properly. So that's, therein lies a big part of the challenge in trying to get doctors and other healthcare providers to be much more knowledgeable about the condition and be able to differentially diagnose it in a, in a more effective and more accurate way. Yeah. Okay. And what got you interested in fibromyalgia? Oh, I think, uh, you know, the old saying that uh, necessity is the mother of invention or something like that, I think it was sheer desperation because I was seeing so many patients that uh, either had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia formally or, or thought they had it or were told by a neighbor they had it or somehow came to the conclusion that they had it. Um, and I saw many of them through my functional medicine lens, I was able to identify other things, other metabolic issues, other uh, different uh, things that it actually was. And when we treated it, they got better. Conversely, I saw some people that seemed a bit different than that. They truly had all of, they checked all the boxes of, of, you know, what you would expect in a fibromyalgia patient when you look in the scientific literature. And I, I, I came early in my career to appreciate that they were very, very difficult patients to manage. Uh, it was really hard to get impact with them uh, and make them feel a lot better. So I knew I had to learn a lot more about it. So um, in, in just sort of having some discussions with a few respected colleagues, we all kind of, you know, came to that conclusion. And me and particularly another uh, colleague and great friend of mine, Dr. Michael Schneider, who's now a um, federally funded researcher uh, in this field at the University of Pittsburgh, um, we sort of embarked upon a, about a 15-year period of essentially making ourselves experts uh, in this disorder from reaching out to all of the, the best researchers at the time to reading every uh, published paper on the topic, any textbook chapter we can get, and then eventually going into research in this realm ourselves and becoming the authors that we're publishing in those same journals that we were once reading. Uh, combined, combining that with then seeing um, hundreds, if not thousands of patients with a fibromyalgia diagnosis over the years, um, combining that clinical experience and my academic and research background uh, in dedicating a lot of my career to this disorder, um, I, I certainly have emerged on the other side with a much um, more comprehensive understanding uh, of this condition than the average doctor uh, unfortunately has. So uh, for the readers that are not familiar with this disease, what are some of the boxes you check off, like pain and trigger points, just so the average listener has a little better yeah. idea of what fibromyalgia is? Well, fibromyalgia, uh, first of all, one of the criteria of diagnosing it is all the symptoms I'm about to, t to tell you or, or the things that are associated with it, you have to rule out that they're not being caused by some other reason, some other medical disorder, some other condition, and that's often not done. But... 
the hallmark of fibromyalgia is what's called widespread pain. And that means that the, the person has sort of an achiness throughout the body. Uh, they have deep-seated achy pain, particularly perceived in the muscles or the soft tissues, not in the joints. So in other words, it's not hip pain and knee pain and shoulder pain. It's, it's, it's pain deep in the softer, compliable or fib- fibrous tissues. There, hence the name fibromyalgia. Fibro meaning soft, compliant tissues, muscles, tendons, ligaments, fascia, not the bone, not the joints. Algia meaning pain. So it really is this achy, deep-seated pain all over the body. It has to be global. By that, we mean it can't be in one or two places. It can't be, you know, you have this pain and achiness in your neck and in your low back, but your legs are fine, your arms are fine. It doesn't work like that. In true classic fibromyalgia, it really doesn't discriminate where you feel the pain. So you feel it above the waist, below the waist, right side, left side, in the extremities, along, you know, the main uh, part of the body. Um, So it's really an issue with perception of pain in those areas. Uh, We'll talk about that more later, but the pain is a hallmark. It has to be global pain. It has to be longstanding, more than six months in duration. There can't be another medical cause of it. Uh, But also, these patients, almost 100% of them, have profound fatigue. Um, They're tired all the time. Uh, they have a particular type of sleep dysfunction which produces sleep that is non-refreshing. In other words, they wake up feeling like they've never slept. Even though they may have slept 10 or 12 or 14 hours, they wake up feeling like they never slept. Um, They also tend to have a conglomeration of other associated symptoms such as depression, at least mild depression, often anxiety, Um, vague gastrointestinal complaints, uh, which often get diagnosed as irritable bowel syndrome. So irritable bowel syndrome, depression, anxiety, unrefreshed sleep, uh, achiness and fatigue, uh, but brain fog as well, so cognitive dysfunction. And then the last component is often in their history, they have a significant episode or series of episodes of significant stress or trauma, and they have a much higher incidence of early childhood trauma, such as abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, um, tr- you know, some sort of physical trauma, something like that is much more common uh, in those folks. And the vast majority of fibromyalgia patients or subjects are female. It's predominantly a woman's disorder, uh, not a man's disorder. So is the list you just went through just basically what you use to diagnose it? Yes, but in a very systematic way. Uh, You really need to look at all of those different elements, uh, and that is covered in the diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia. But unfortunately, the diagnostic criteria is, like I said, loose around the edges, and it pulls in too many people that may have a lot of those things I just talked about in play, but have other reasons for them, or a multitude of reasons for them um, that are not um, fibromyalgia, which is really a, you know, when, pe- when you ask even doctors, what is fibromyalgia, they'll tend to say, oh, it's a muscle problem, right? Because the perception of pain, which is the main symptom, is a perception of achiness in the muscles. So they'll go, oh, that's a muscle problem. In reality, we know from the research that it is not a muscle problem at all. It is a brain issue. It's a central nervous system issue in the way 
pain and other stimuli and sensory information is processed by the brain, uh, and it creates a perception of pain around the body or a hyperperception of all the sensory stimuli entering the brain. So the problem is not where you feel the symptoms. The problem is more central in the brain, and that's why there are so many other symptoms that you would never relate to muscles. Like why would a muscle problem give you depression, give you anxiety, give you unrefreshed sleep, give you gut or bowel problems? So it's much more than a musculoskeletal or structural problem. It really is more of a central nervous system or brain problem. And how does this differ from chronic fatigue syndrome? Oh, that's a great question because for many, many years they were always lumped together and it drives me crazy. You still see that in articles, in magazines, or even in medical papers, unfortunately, where they will say they'll reference fibromyalgia slash chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome slash fibromyalgia, when in reality they're very different disorders. They have very distinct diagnostic criteria. The only thing they really share in common is that both sets of patients are profoundly fatigued. But in fibromyalgia, if you ask the person, what is your main problem? If I can help you with what thing, what would it be? Their answer invariably is the pain. The pain is, is just wrecking my life. Where in chronic fatigue syndrome, many of those patients, they don't have any pain at all. They don't have achiness and pain unless they have some other reason for it, like an arm, a bad joint or arthritis or something. Um, and they don't have nearly the same incidence of things like anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, and things like that. They tend to just have significant, profound, unrelenting tiredness or fatigue, which often comes on after a serious viral infection or a viral event, such as, you know, they got the flu and then they've never felt the same. Uh, that's not necessarily the history with fibromyalgia. So they share fatigue in common, but... Other than that, they're really very different entities. Uh, why do women have it at much greater proportion than men do? Well, we don't know. Uh, there's some hypotheses, but we, we don't fundamentally know. We do know that there is a difference in the way the nervous system behaves. Uh, now, this is generally speaking, there are certainly individual uh, differences and there are there are definitely males that would meet the criteria for fibromyalgia, but it's quite rare. Um, but basically, the female brain deals with stress, trauma, um, things like abuse, you know, physical trauma, anything like that we know in a very different way than the male brain does. Um, so if you had a classic environment, and I'm not saying that every woman who has fibromyalgia has this type of background, but a classic background might be, they were raised in a household with, um, you know, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of chaos going on, maybe parents who were fighting a lot, a very acrimonious divorce when the, when the uh, little girl was very young, uh, certainly situations of, uh, you know, a lot of yelling, and a very authoritarian uh, male figure, like, a, let's say, a, an alcoholic, raging sort of uh, father figure in the home where the the girl felt unsafe, uh, maybe felt threatened. Uh, certainly if there's physical sexual abuse of them or another family member, those are all the kind of things that you see a lot in histories of these, um, of these women who end up developing fibromyalgia and IBS and anxiety disorder. Now, there's a lot of young boys who grow up in those environments as well, 
And we know that they don't tend to go on to develop things like fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, and anxiety disorder nearly at the rate that women do, but they do develop dysfunction. They just express it in a different way. They tend to become repeat abusers in the way they were abused. Uh, They tend to act out violently, get easily frustrated, um, and they basically will act out physically, mostly with violence. Now, women don't do that. You might say that they internalize it more uh, and adapt in a different way, which is probably a a more um, reasonable way to deal with it, but uh, nevertheless, it, it causes great dysfunction in their life. So that's part of what we need to do when we confront treating these disorders is understand what we're dealing with, with all of the um, antecedents and triggers and mediators that ended up, you know, expressing in this disorder later in life. So uh, we don't know. We just know that men and women's brains kind of deal with those things differently and have ultimate um, sort of adaptation patterns uh, that are different from one another. Okay, so you mentioned that doctors tend to misdiagnose this. I know your approach is to look under the hood, look at various contributing factors, and to rule out other th- uh, diseases that might present similar sin- sin- symptoms. Is that why the other doctors are misdiagnosing it, or why are they misdiagnosing it? Uh, it's a combination of things. I think they're a little bit lazy about it. They weren't taught it enough in school. There was a, a long... Um, time where fibromyalgia, you know, doctors were, would just doubt it. They would blow it off. Uh, and even in training, they were told, oh, this isn't a real deal. This is, you know, this is made up. Patients are just, you know, imagining all of this or they're hysterical or whatever. I think there was a little bit of male bias uh, going on with a male-dominated medical profession for many, many decades. And this is a sort of a woman's disorder. And uh, it was discounted inappropriately. I think that's changed over time, but not enough. We still have a lot of doctors out there that were basically trained by their mentors that this isn't a real thing. So they don't take it seriously, number one. Number two, they kind of have perceptions about it, that they think they know something about it, um, but they are wrong. Like most doctors, if you ask them, what is fibromyalgia? Like I said, they'll say it's a muscle problem, which it's not. They'll say it's inflammatory just because it produces pain, which is it's not overtly inflammatory. A lot of them think it's an autoimmune disease, which it's not. So there's a lot of things that there's just misperceptions out there and and bad information. It's not being corrected. Um, They don't look at it as a life-threatening kind of disorder that they better learn about quick or or someone may die, you know, on their watch. Um, And then we we have a lack of a definitive objective laboratory diagnostic marker or an imaging or some sort of medical test that can tell them yes or no, someone has it. So it involves a bit of a clinical diagnosis and some experience and art uh, at it. Um, and, um, and then the diagnostic criteria that has been produced is not uh, definitive. It's just not great. It's not great at separating out other things that can cause all of the symptoms that make up the criteria. So tell me what other things are often confused with fibromyalgia. I mean, they might obviously be contributing to symptoms, but what other things are often confused with it? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a long list of them, but uh, I, in my book, The Fibro Fix, I talk about the, all of the different masqueraders, but I talk about the big three masqueraders of fibromyalgia. These are the things that often get women a diagnosis of fibromyalgia when they really don't have it. Um, 
Probably the first thing is called uh, myofascial pain syndrome, and this truly is a muscle disorder. This is where there is areas of of uh, extreme tightness and irritation and inflammation of the muscle and the fascia around the muscles. And this is what produces something called trigger points, right, myofascial trigger points. And they are actually very different from the areas that doctors used to test or push on to determine if you had fibromyalgia and if you had more pain than you, one would expect on the amount of pressure being applied. They were actually called tender points, not trigger points, although they started being used interchangeably. So you'll hear doctors talking about trigger points in fibromyalgia, and actually trigger points are associated with myofascial pain syndrome, and tender points are associated with fibromyalgia. So myofascial pain syndrome is truly a musculoskeletal issue that needs a, you know, a, a therapy that's more of a manual um, manual medicine. So uh, body work, uh, ischemic compression, I mean, thing, you know, uh, various forms of myofascial therapy can help that. That is one way that someone gets diagnosed with fibromyalgia when they don't have it. The second big masquerader is actually uh, hypothyroidism, because if your thyroid is not right, and I, I don't even mean to the point of obvious uh, medical hypothyroidism where if they just do a TSH and, a, and maybe a T4, total T4 test, they find it. I'm talking about more subtleties of um, insufficient thyroid function um, or suboptimal thyroid function where there's a problem in thyroid hormone conversion or receptor recognition of the active hormone. It's extremely common uh, hypothyroidism is at epidemic proportions right now, particularly in females. It's predominantly a woman's disorder again. And if your thyroid is slow, uh, you will be fatigued. It can cause muscle achiness. It can cause brain fog. It can cause slow bowels, which can cause constipation and get you a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. You will be tired all the time. So it sets up perfectly for a diagnosis of fibromyalgia if someone is not looking closely enough or granularly enough at the thyroid function. And the third big masquerader is actually downregulation of what are called the mitochondria in your cells. Okay. It's where with energy this, is made. We will, we're at a break now, and okay. with, with these three uh, items, uh, we will come back after the break and continue. Great. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Did you know that nearly a third of Americans have made us the number one country in obesity rates in the world? It's true. It's time for Right Choices. Tune in every week for the show that aims to make you healthier. You don't need a lot of time, money, or even need to travel far. Host Dietrich Wright will show you what you can do easily to be more fit, healthier, have more energy, and live a better life overall. Be sure to make us a part of your weekend every Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show. 
every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Well, welcome back. This is Occupy Health with Dr. Susan, and we have Dr. Brady with us, who's an expert in fibromyalgia. He was telling us about the three conditions often uh, confused with fibromyalgia, and two of them are hypothyroid, and he was just starting to talk about mitochondrial dysfunction, which is uh, a problem in just most every disease. So tell us more about mitochondrial dysfunction and how that can be confused with fibromyalgia. It might also contribute to it as well, but tell us about it. Sure. That's, that's the third of the big three masqueraders with myofascial pain syndrome and hypothyroidism, as you said. But mitochondrial dysfunction is a problem where your cells are not efficient at making energy or ATP, adenosine triphosphate, uh, which is sort of the energy currency in the body. And a lot of things can cause that. There are some genetic uh, polymorphisms where you don't uh, perform as well as others might in certain key biochemical reactions of energy production. Uh, and we look at that in great detail in, in, uh, in our patients with something called an organic acid test. And we look at something called the Krebs cycle and how you make energy. Because if you're not making energy at, at, at the level of each cell, you will certainly be tired. Uh, your brain will not function well, so you'll have brain fog. Um, you, you will be achy because uh, you don't make enough energy to keep the muscles working right. And they actually, it's complicated, but they go into a secondary type of metabolism uh, called anaerobic metabolism because it doesn't use oxygen. And they make all kinds of acid and leave it in your muscles and they hurt. So we look at that uh, significantly, and that can be a cause in and of itself for the symptoms that would get someone diagnosed with fibromyalgia, or as you correctly alluded to, many people who do actually have classic fibromyalgia, they have this pain processing disorder, they also, along with it, have difficulties in mitochondrial function. So that's something that we definitely try to correct. Now, there are many more disorders that often get someone a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, but those were just the three most common ones. Well, let me go through some of those less common ones. They could include problems with adrenal glands, GI problems, Lyme disease, anemia, ankylosing spondylitis, arachnoiditis, cancer, lupus, multiple sclerosis, scleroderma, stealth infections, which is a big one that's causing a lot of problems, and rheumatoid arthritis. So these can be co- might be comorbid, but, we, but it sounds like the good practitioner needs to rule these out and really look under that hood. 
Yeah, for instance, I just last week uh, I had a patient who had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia at a center of excellence. I won't name it, <laughs> but a big time <laughs> name, a brand name that everyone would know. I can uh, guess academic, which one it is. <laughs> academic Medical Center, and they came in fibromyalgia on one of the fibromyalgia medications. And when you know I did this looking under the hood, it just didn't add up. She had significant pain all over the body globally, but you know didn't have depression, didn't have anxiety, didn't have unre fresh sleep, didn't really have bowel problems. It just didn't make sense. So in her situation, once we ruled everything else out, made sure the thyroid was right, made sure her mitochondrial function was good or bowel function was good, um, I sent her to a specific neurologist who I know has the ability to test for, and it involves uh, actually biopsies under the skin for something called small fiber polyneuropathy, and that indeed ended up being exactly what she had. Uh, She had a form of neuropathy called small fiber polyneuropathy, which needs its own specific type of treatment. And the medication she was on for fibromyalgia would never treat that effectively. And it was just never being found. So that's, that's an example of, you know, what we learn in, in medical school often uh, on the first day, certainly the first week, is that, you know, proper diagnosis is half the cure. You don't know how to treat something right unless you know actually what you're dealing with. And that was the case with her. Now, it must be very frustrating for these patients because if they go to the typical physicians, aren't they just going to be given pain medications? Usually, uh, you know, and all those physicians are trying to do the right thing. They're, they're doing the best they can. They just really have not been trained well on how to deal with this. But if they come to the conclusion, whether it's accurate or not, that the person has fibromyalgia, right now the standard of care or the FDA-approved treatments for fibromyalgia uh, involves drug therapy, and there's three approved drugs. Two of them are repurposed, recycled, renamed uh, antidepressants. Um, And they are in the class of antidepressants known as SSNRIs or SNRIs, which they modulate serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, The other drug uh, is an old repurposed, once again, um, anti-epileptic or anti-seizure drug, uh, which uh, is very similar uh, to the neurotransmitter GABA. Uh, so the, the, there's no drug that's ever been developed from the ground up for fibromyalgia. They're repurposed drugs that they found out by sort of by accident that they may help a small number of patients uh, feel better, be less depressed, have better sleep. But even with the, the folks diagnosed with fibromyalgia fairly accurately, put on those drugs, about 25% or so uh, get significantly, um, statistically significant benefit. The others don't. They're, they're failures to treatment. So the drug options uh, for this disorder or the standard of care treatment for this disorder is not very good. It's not useless it's in all. It's just not very good for most people. So what you're saying is that you, uh, the... Uh, typical treatment for this is treating the symptoms, which is pain, but not looking under the hood to find out what's actually causing it. To some degree, although the the drugs that are used to treat it, honestly, they're not direct pain uh, medications uh, because those have been tried. Um, 
every, every kind of class of pain medication that is tried in true classic fibromyalgia is ineffective. Uh, so non, you know, anti-inflammatories, whether non-steroidal, cortisone, all of that doesn't work. And right up to even opioid pain medications, believe it or not, don't work with fibromyalgia pain. It's because it's a different kind of pain. It's now being called the third pain or the third type of pain. And it's deep-seated sort of deep brain, emotionally connected pain, uh, for lack of a better term, based on experience uh, in the past. It's sort of a, you know, the body remembers sort of an event where the opioids don't even affect it. So pain medications don't work. Um, The drugs that are used, these antidepressants and these anti-epileptics, work centrally deep on deep centers of the brain. They do work with neurotransmitters like serotonin, norepinephrine, and, uh, and GABA. Uh, so they are acting centrally. So they are getting to the core to some degree of the disorder, but certainly not getting to the totality of it. So how do you treat fibromyalgia? What is in your program? Well, first of all, we diagnosed it correctly uh, to the best of our ability because this isn't my opinion. This is medical studies in peer-reviewed journals by fibromyalgia experts. uh, There's multiple ones. The last one showed that with the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology criteria, when patients go to a doctor, family practitioner, internist, rheumatologist, whatever, and they get a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, if they then take those patients and they send them to an expert panel of highly trained fibromyalgia experts, they will confirm the diagnosis being correct roughly one-third of the time or 33% of the time. So if you flip that upside down, it means that 66% of these people are misdiagnosed. So if they're put on a drug for fibromyalgia, even if that drug would work 100%, they're still not getting most of them well because they have other problems. So we look at what those other problems are. If the problem's a thyroid issue, we optimize and treat the thyroid. If it's a mitochondrial energy issue, we have to treat that. And there's various ways to do that depending on where the dysfunction is. If it's myofascial pain syndrome, we get them the correct treatment for that. And that may involve, you know, things that help with muscle relaxation, anti-inflammation, but it's really hands-on physical body work type of therapy. With true classic fibromyalgia, we also work deep centrally in the brain. So we will use things like precursors to different neurotransmitters to balance them or neurotransmitters themselves. So we do use GABA. We use precursors to serotonin like 5-hydroxytryptophan. We use different botanicals that are centrally acting. Uh, We will optimize adrenal function to take away any stress uh, there and, and fatigue being caused by that. We work with sleep significantly. So we'll use agents to help with sleep and sleep persistence, whether it's melatonin or German chamomile or GABA and other things. But we also work with sleep hygiene, making sure the sleep environment is well. We work with circadian rhythm therapy. We also have to calm the central nervous system and get people out of a pattern we call hypervigilance. So that may involve biofeedback in various forms or cognitive behavioral therapy. We use heart rate variability training, real-time EEG biofeedback. We'll use home devices that they could put on their iPhone or, 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 or tablet to do biofeedback and retrain their brain into calmer patterns. 
Um, we will often uh, have them engage in things like guided imagery, meditation, yoga, some sort of calming, stress-reducing practice. Um, we get them moving again in a very safe way. Regaining mobility and range of motion in the body is absolutely important, although you don't want to overexert them with the wrong kind of exercise. So my book, The FibroFix, takes all that experience and basically works you through all those different domains or elements of recovery and also allows you to self-determine and find out do you really likely have classic fibromyalgia or do you have one of these other disorders where the treatment needs to be aimed specifically at that? So are there specific tests, like obviously uh, you mentioned uh, in your book that toxins is a, a, uh, a possible contribution. you measure for those? And you just mentioned neurotransmitters. Do you have specific tests for which neurotransmitters need addressed? Uh, well, the first question was toxins. Certainly toxins can be in play in any chronic debilitating disease, particularly one that involves fatigue um, and neurocognitive dysfunction. So if we know that there's a history of exposure somewhere, either dietary exposure, occupational exposure, dental amalgam exposure, whatever it may be, mold exposure, we will test for those things. Um, and we do different kinds of tests depending on which toxin we may be concerned about. If it's heavy metals, mercury, lead, transitional metals, we'll use provoked urine tests after using a provocation agent and catch urine over time. Uh, if it's mold, there's different types of panels for molds and different um, you know, environmental chemicals. Um, and then the, you mentioned neurotransmitters. What we tend to do as a baseline in our testing is something I mentioned previously called an organic acid panel. And that tells us a lot about the metabolites of very key central neurotransmitters like epinephrine, dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, GABA. We'll get a referendum on that, and we go to work on rebalancing all of that. And, but the patient is very actively engaged in their own recovery. They have to do the movement, uh, the range of motion uh, exercises. They have to do the you know, the calming exercises uh, as far as cognitive behavioral therapy, which we give them a palette of things to pick from. They have to eat a very good, you know, uh, diet. They can't be eating a really bad inflammatory, very, uh, you know, uh, allergenic type of diet. So there's, there's a part to play for everybody, for, for the physician, for the patient, for their support network, you know, their, their family members and friends and so forth. And we put together a whole very personalized program for them that is usually uh, very, very effective. What I like about your book is you go into these different contributory factors and you give some uh, suggestions that people can use for detoxing that they can do at home, such as skin brushing, um, right. Epsom salt baths. You yep. talk about relaxation. But then you go further, like if you've got muscle tightness, you recommend certain uh, supplements for inflammation and for calming and stress reduction. And you, 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 so the listener can go look at your book and do a little self-help on his own. But at what point does he come see a practitioner? 
Well, you know, that's, that's interesting, and I try to delineate that in the book as well. The book is really meant as a self-help guide, so you can take control uh, and be your own best self-help advocate to recover from this disorder, because often relying on physicians is not going to get you there. So I try to give arm people with, not try to make them doctors, but arm them with enough information where they're really smart about this disorder. And by the time they read that book, they will have a really good idea if they really have fibromyalgia, which we call classic fibromyalgia, or are they likely to have one of these other things that get them the misdiagnosis? And if it's one of those other things, we go through a lot of very specific advice to deal with those other things. Um, and, you know, we'll run them through different questionnaires and have them examine different elements about their life. We'll apply the current diagnostic criteria to them. And through that whole process, you know, they will have a good idea if they have it or not. And then based on what bucket or, or category they land in, we'll make specific strengths of recommendation on whether you should engage uh, a healthcare provider to help you through this process. And we give recommendations for those providers, what kinds of tests to do, what things to consider. And we also give uh, resources on where to find the right kind of providers. So I give people ideas on where to find functional integrative medicine trained physicians and healthcare providers uh, in their area, uh, which I think is exceedingly important. Yes, I mean, in your book, you've got specific recommendations on how people can work with uh, improving their mood, etc. So uh, what kind of success do you find with your program? Uh, you know, ultimately, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on what is actually wrong with the patients. Uh, different disorders are, are more amenable to treatment and very quick um, recovery than others. Uh, certainly, <clears throat> let's say if it's really a thyroid issue, well, once identified, we can turn that around very, very quickly. In a matter of weeks, they feel like a totally different person. Um, in mitochondrial dysfunction and different types of toxicities and so forth, um, that's very treatable as well. It just takes just slightly longer. If it's actually true classic fibromyalgia with central pain processing disorder, they have a strong history of, let's say, abuse and adverse childhood events and things like that. This, these can be very deep-seated patterns, which you have to change over time. You don't change them overnight. And it really is much more dependent at that point on the patient really fully engaging in the program. They have to change the way their brain processes things and the way they react to stress, and, and um, that takes a little more time. Now, we support them biochemically and with lifestyle changes and diet and so forth and medications where necessary, but that takes a little bit longer. But even in those folks, they have significant improvement in a matter of months generally. It's rare that someone does not. Um, you mentioned GI problems. So the, what is the role of the gut in fibromyalgia? I mean, it's so critical in most other diseases. I imagine that the gut's going to contribute to all the uh, comorbid conditions and all the conditions that are confused with fibromyalgia. So how does the gut contribute to fibromyalgia? Oh, complicated, but uh, basically... You know, virtually 100%, almost 100% of patients that uh, truly have fibromyalgia have uh, diagnosable irritable bowel syndrome. So it's almost a one-to-one -one correlation. A lot of them also have something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, the gut is very involved because the 
underlying dysfunction in the central nervous system um, that's producing most of the symptoms of fibromyalgia, the depression, anxiety, pain, perception of pain, inability to sleep. Um, the same dysfunction is going on in the enteric nervous system, which is the nervous system of the gastrointestinal tract, and it involves the same exact neurotransmitters, serotonin, GABA, and so forth. So it's really not a mystery that the two are linked. So we do some significant GI testing, particularly if there's a lot of GI symptoms. We'll use molecular or DNA-based stool analysis uh, tests called the GI map. Um, and um, there's a lot of gut-brain connections that are now being talked about a lot, even in the medical literature. But metabolites and bad stuff from the gut, when the gut is not healthy, can actually influence the brain, how the brain processes, how the brain thinks. It can make deep centers of the brain inflamed, uh, which can be a component of, of much of the symptoms. So it's very involved, and we look at it very, very closely because you, we really have no choice. You have to. And what kind of diet do you recommend for people who suspect they might have fibromyalgia? Well, I go over that extensively in the book, and, you know, you can't be totally conclusive on the individual-by-individual basis because everyone has their own maybe sensitivities, allergies, you know, immune activations from various foods, or they may have different intolerances to foods for other reasons. But generally, we're at least during our initial phase of this 21-day foundational program we go over where you're kind of going through a metabolic reboot and detox, if you will, Uh, you're eating very much whole fresh foods, you know, organic, non-GMO, lots of fresh vegetables, moderate amounts of key fruits, good lean protein with each meal. And we tend to have more of a, you know, no dairy, no grain. We're taking people up to gluten, gluten, and field grass grains because not necessarily because that relates directly to fibromyalgia, but a lot of things confused with fibromyalgia are inflammatory autoimmune disorders, and they can very much be fueled by gluten, gliadin, and dairy and other common food immune intolerances. So we put them on a very clean, whole, fresh, real food diet, essentially. And will your program help people who do not have fibromyalgia? Uh, Yeah, basically, because everything we're saying in there is generally good for your health if you want to have more robust health. And by by definition, the book is written more for people without fibromyalgia than with it because most people diagnosed with fibromyalgia don't have it. They have something else, and the data is very clear on that. So we bring everybody through a process. Now they may get different recommendations based on whether they ultimately conclude they have it or they don't, and if they don't, what they actually have. Um, there's nothing in there that would be harmful to anybody, and virtually everything is, is of benefit. Now, most uh, it seems that toxins are associated increasingly with many diseases. I mean, thyroid disorders, heart disorders, and even Alzheimer's disease. So uh, without going you know, through chelation, what are some simple steps that the listener can take to help detox? Because we're all laden with toxins. Well, if you're talking about just general detoxification, once again, eating whole, fresh, organic, real foods, uh, getting enough Lean protein in your diet is important because the main things that we use to get rid of toxins are conjugates or things that we attach toxins to that drag them out of the body, and they're basically amino acids or derived from protein, particularly sulfur-containing amino acids like methionine and cysteine and so forth. 
they build up something called glutathione, and that's what helps detox. So good, you know, whole food diet with lots of antioxidant-rich vegetables and fruits, uh, but also good lean protein, enough calories in the diet is very important. Um, Avoiding, you know, all your science foods and foods of convenience that are prepackaged and and things like that, very important. And then just from a basic supplementation standpoint, things like N-acetylcysteine, glutathione, these are all very, very important for detoxification. Now, the front end of our program is really a, a, a pretty... Um, well-constructed 21-day foundational program, which includes a 21-day detoxification, which involves dietary changes, some detoxification um, uh, functional food products, like, you know, they're in the form of shakes. Um, and while you're, while you're reading the book and figuring the rest out, um, and while you're starting movement and, and uh, calming exercises and things like that. And there's a lot of information just on the website fibrofix.com, short of reading the book. Uh, if you go into, you know, the resources section and the media tabs, uh, there's places of, uh, if you go to fibrofix.com and go to the book tab, you can get a free introduction and first chapter of the book. There's lots of uh, interviews with me on television and so forth where I talk a lot of, about many of these things. There's some supplement guides on there. Uh, but the best thing to do would be to, to go ahead and read the book. Now we've got about two minutes left. Would you have any? Would you like to summarize or emphasize some points that are particularly important? Sure. I would just say that if you have think you have fibromyalgia, been diagnosed with it, uh, you know, just keep your mind open to the fact that you might have something different, and it doesn't diminish that uh, you're hurting, doesn't diminish that you have some significant problems. It just means that you need to get to the root of them. You need to know what you have accurately to get the right treatment. Uh, maybe indeed you do have classic fibromyalgia, but if you don't, the drugs and the other things for fibromyalgia are likely not to help you and are likely to harm you. So I would advocate you, you read up, read my book if you so choose, um, and uh, find a good provider that can help you through the process if you think you need that as your health coach. It's a great book. It breaks down all these steps so we can each dig a little deeper into each of these areas, such as sleep and what to do for muscle tightness, etc. And any more final words? Uh, the last thing is, you know, I did a, the FibroFix Summit, which had over 35 experts interviewed on, on the topic of fibromyalgia and all things related to it, like the other disorders that mimic it. Uh, and that ran uh, last June at like 40,000 people on it, but it's still available. Uh, if you go to fibrofix.com, there's a Fibrofix Summit tab, or you can just go to fibrofixsummit.com, uh, and uh, you can get like five free interviews of that, and you can access the whole summit if you'd like. It's just an incredible repository of uh, information on it for patients. Okay. With this, I would like to say that we should look at his book. It's, very, it's got a lot of good information on the various contributing factors and underlying factors. Uh, consult with a functional medicine practitioner who will help you look under the hood to see these factors. So do your own research and consult with your provider and so you can go out and help yourself and others and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.